Well, as the team and choir were leading us that song, I was kind of looking out and looking at our building, you know, thinking through the uh, people, uh, you know, all the giving uh, that the Lord used to build this building, uh, seeing you all giving your time here and thinking he is worthy, right, of this, right, of us gathering to worship, of us devoting this building to ministry in his name. <clears throat> he is worthy of this. You know, he's also worthy of the going that believers have done throughout the centuries. Missionaries who have gone and sometimes given their lives, believers in persecuted contexts who have given their lives in order to share the gospel with others. He is worthy of that. <clears throat> this week, we're going to be talking about local evangelism, our first core value. And I want to begin by just sh sharing a story that was told to me when I, I went up to uh, a, a very kind of hilly and uh, rural area of northern Michigan for a meeting with uh, some other pastors in our state. And uh, while we were there at this, uh, this uh, little Christian ministry there, in a very rural area, the director was kind of telling me the history of, of uh, their ministry, and, and he told me that the property had been uh, owned by what he called a mountain man. And I'm from Colorado, and so, you know, I kind of think of some of th these guys that kind of, you know, live in the little log cabin, you know, up in the mountains or whatever. And, and that was basically what he had in mind. He, he said it was interesting is the person who lived there was such a recluse and had lived out in the woods in very rugged conditions for so long that he actually had foliage growing in his beard. Now, I want to ask you to imagine if you were that man's physician. Now, we, we have a lot of medical professionals in our congregation. I just want all of you, whether you're a medical professional or not, to imagine if you were this man's personal doctor. And I want you to imagine that you knew that he had a very aggressive form of cancer, a, a terminal form of cancer if left untreated, but fortunately a form of cancer for which there is effective treatment. What would you do? Well, I, I think if you cared about this individual, you would go to him and you would sit down with him and try to explain to him that if uh, he doesn't get treatment, that he's going to die. My guess is that that conversation with this individual, as he was described to me by uh, this camp director, might have been a little difficult. This might not have been an individual who would welcome you warmly, and especially not the kind of individual who would welcome the news that you're trying to bring to him. The reality would be that you're bringing him good news, right? That there's a treatment for this fatal disease that he has. But he might not receive it as good news because he may not be willing or wanting to acknowledge the reality of his condition. That's essentially what happens when we go out to evangelize. We go out into the world and there are people who have a, a fatal illness called sin. In fact, the scripture says they're dead in their trespasses and sins already, but we are bringing to them good news 
that there is eternal life, that Christ has triumphed over sin and the grave, that he has atoned for sin, and if they will repent and believe, they can have full and complete forgiveness, and they can be born again to a new life, an eternal life. This is great news. But for them to receive that good news, they must first acknowledge there's a problem. You know, this mountain man, I'm sure, was in pain. He was experiencing pain, but that doesn't mean he'll be willing to acknowledge the source of the pain. Unbelievers out in the world are in pain. They are in spiritual pain. The Lord has created man with a conscience, and the conscience is a spiritual warning system. It's a lot like physical pain. It alerts us that something is dreadfully wrong. Unbelievers are in spiritual pain, but most of them, they, you know, they're a lot like someone who doesn't want to acknowledge that they have cancer, right? Well, you know, maybe I tweaked my back. Maybe I, you know, maybe my bones hurt because, you know, it's a little cold outside today, right? Unbelievers are like that. They are experiencing intense spiritual pain, but they relabel it. Maybe it's psychological pain. Maybe it's emotional pain. And then they try to resolve that sense of pain by suppressing its sensations, right? They try to medicate themselves. They try to drink that spiritual pain away. They try to party that sin away, that, that, that spiritual pain away. They try to just be so busy that they can't sense that spiritual pain. But no matter what they do, the spiritual pain continues. And it is our mission, right, to go and to share good news with them that there is salvation in Christ. You know, the news is good news, but it may not seem that way to them, at least initially, but we love them and so we go. And we love Christ and so we go. Scripture says that the Father seeks true worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and in truth. We love the Lord. We want to see him glorified and worshiped and so we go out and we try to gather true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Last week, we began a nine-week sermon series in which we're studying the key biblical passages from which the elders have derived our mission statement, our seven core values, and our vision statement. Now, our mission statement describes our divine commission. Our core values describe our desired character, and our vision statement describes our directional calling. So the mission statement is our commission, core values describe our desired character, and the vision statement describes our calling. Now last week we looked at our mission statement, which was derived directly from the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. If you remember from last week, our mission statement is Calvary Bible Church exists to multiply disciples who glorify God by going to all peoples, gathering in community, and growing in Christ. So as we talked about last time, we're here for one key purpose, to multiply disciples 
who glorify God. And then we seek to accomplish that key purpose in three main ways. We go to them to share the good news of the gospel. We gather those who believe into the loving community of the church. And we grow in our love and obedience to Christ together. So that is our mission as a church. We exist to multiply disciples who glorify God as we go, gather, and grow. Well, today we're going to begin our journey now through our seven core values. Now, we call them core values because these seven things are things that the elders have identified as being key distinctives or key characteristics that we want to have as a church. And we call them core values because these seven things are certainly not the only things that we value. We value many other things as well. But these are seven of the things that the elders consider to be things we want to emphasize, vital characteristics of who we want to be as a church. And those seven core values are local evangelism, global outreach, loving community, humble prayer, expository preaching, fervent worship, and practical training. So today we're going to focus on that first core value, which is local evangelism. Now before we dive into that, I want to mention and just kind of urge you not to rank the core values in some sort of hierarchical order of importance in your mind. We didn't put them in order of importance. In fact, the elders view all seven of these core values as equally important. So why are they in the order that they're in? And the answer is for no particular reason. <clears throat> order was not a major concern of the elders. The, the most I could say about the, the order is that we generally tried to group them in the order of go, gather, and grow. But if, as you'll see as we go along, the core values, each of them kind of hits all three of those aspects. And so, you know, perhaps you could, you know, place local evangelism a little bit more in the go category and then practical training more in the, the grow category and some of the ones in the middle more in the gather category. So maybe generally speaking, they're arranged in a go gathering and growing order. Um, but don't uh, put too much importance to the sequence or the order that they're in. All seven are equally important. Now, you know, sometimes when, you know, when a congregation is listening to the pastor, they're trying to kind of read between the lines, well, which one is most important to him? And I'll, I'll give you a little clue. The one that's most important to me is the one I'm preaching on this week. And the one that's most important to me will be the one I preach on next week. And then the one that I preach after that will be the one that's most important to me that week. In other words, as is typical of preachers, whatever I'm preaching on is what I'm most passionate about for that period of time. So let's go into our first core value, which is local evangelism. The elder's statement on this core value reads as follows. The great commission in Matthew 28 and the great commandments in Matthew 22 place a sacred responsibility upon us to reach our neighbors with the gospel and love of Christ. Our responsibility begins with our nearest neighbors who are our own families and extends to our personal neighbors, those who live or work near us, 
our congregational neighbors, those attending services or living near the church building, and the least reached communities in our city, whether that be university students, immigrants, or neglected neighborhoods. Evangelism is both an individual and a corporate responsibility. And so training members and combining the diversity of their individual spiritual gifts is vital to effective outreach ministries. So that is core value number one, local evangelism. Simply put, we want our friends, our family, our neighbors, our community to know the Lord, to hear the good news of the gospel, to be saved. You know, how sad it would be if we kept the good news to ourselves, right? Can you imagine if that mountain man's doctor knew that he could save this man's life but made no effort to convince him to seek treatment? How sad it would be if we did something much worse than that, which is to keep the good news of eternal life not just temporal life, but eternal life to ourselves. There's nothing more joyous, fulfilling, and exciting than being part of the Lord's mission to save, to be the means by which he delivers that good news. We are just earthen vessels, right? Just jars of clay, nothing special, nothing. In fact, we're just sinners saved by grace, right? As someone once said, you know, evangelism is just one sinner telling a, one starving person telling another where to find bread, right? That's all, right? We were starving, we found the bread of life, and we go out and we tell others, hey, we found the bread of life. Just one starving person telling another that he has found bread. We get to carry the water of life in these earthen vessels and deliver it to those who not only are in spiritual pain, but in a status of spiritual death. There is no greater privilege and calling than that. So local evangelism is a core value of our church. And when we say that's a core value, we're simply acknowledging that we have the sacred duty and the joyous privilege of sharing the good news. So I've entitled this message, Duty to Share and Joy to Share. Duty to Share and joy to share. Scripture plainly teaches that we have a duty to share the gospel. Last week we saw from Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission that the Lord commanded us saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples. This is a command that make disciples is in the imperative. It is a command, a, an order from the Lord. Go and make disciples. We have a duty that the Lord has given us. We are in a spiritual battle, and as soldiers of Christ, we have a duty. And it is wrong for us to be AWOL. It is wrong for us to shirk our duty, to not fulfill our duty, to disobey our orders or ignore them. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says that we'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we will be his witnesses. Notice it says, you will be my witnesses. 
And in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul says, I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Right? This is a sacred duty. And it is a joyous privilege. It is both a sacred duty and a joyous privilege. We have the duty to share and the joy to share. This is not something we should dread, not something we should do reluctantly. This is something that should absolutely energize our lives and give them incredible purpose. You know, when I was a kid, I had purple pajamas. And, um, and I discovered that we had a purple towel. And what happens when you're a little kid and you have purple pajamas and you tuck a purple towel into the back of your shirt? You instantly become Batman. <laughs> and my brother, who had red pajamas, found a red towel and he instantly became Superman. And for those moments of play and pretend, we could pretend that we could save the world. That we could do something of significance, something important, that we had some sort of power that could change the fate of others. You know, it's interesting that all people, children and adults, long for significance, long to make an impact, long to make the world a better place, to defeat evil and to do good. We see this desire in all human beings. They want to be part of some sort of a movement, something that changes something, something that rescues others. God has made us to have that desire. It's part of being made in his image. But what does the deceiver do? What does Satan do? Well, Satan comes and calls good evil and evil good. He takes that desire to do something of significance, twists people's moral and ethical vision, and gets them to strive to be heroes, not realizing that they are villains. Think of the great villains of history. You know, the scripture says that there is the coming Antichrist, the capital A Antichrist, but 1 John says many Antichrists, small a, have already gone out into the world. Well, what is an Antichrist? It's someone who claims to be a savior and who leads a movement that's going to change the world for good. You think of the communist leaders coming in as those who will save the poor and Really, they wound up massacring millions and imposing totalitarianism, right? Satan knows that we are made to do things of significance. Human beings will do things of significance. So he has to invert that sense of calling and mission so that the effort and the energy and the intelligence will be devoted towards that which is evil rather than that which God intends. But we, of course, know that the Lord has given us a mission that is significant. We have the good news. 
while those who are lost are out spreading the bad news of secular ideologies, we've been entrusted with the good news of eternal life. The only message that saves. What can be more important than rescuing the perishing? What can be more meaningful than helping a friend or a loved one know that they have eternal life? What is more lasting than eternal life? Nothing is more important, more meaningful, or more lasting. And so sharing the gospel should be our greatest joy. You know, sometimes people like to create a dichotomy between serving the earthly needs of people and preaching the gospel. There is no such dichotomy in Scripture. But there is a ranking of priority, and it's easy to understand why. If I come alongside someone and I meet physical needs, emotional needs, I, I do all sorts of wonderful things to improve their earthly life here. I, I truly put my arm around them and hold their hand and hold them up and walk through them throughout all of life and then we get to the edge of eternity and I just let them go as they tumble into a Christless eternity. That is not love. Now, Scripture does not teach us to just, you know, take a, you know, care, I don't care view, and I'm not going to do nothing to help you in your earthly life view, and, and then right as you're tumbling, I'll kind of reach over and snag you. No, no, both of those visions are wrong. The Lord wants us to put our arms around people to help them in this temporal life, but far and away, the most important thing, the most loving thing that you can do for anyone is to make sure that their eternal destiny is where there's no more tears or crying or pain. Do you realize that you have the final and ultimate solution for all of the problems of the world? All of them. The Lord has promised that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no tears or mourning or crying or pain for the old things will pass away and new things will come. The most loving thing you can do for anyone is to make sure they're there. Nothing is that important. Nothing else is that important. We need to do it all. We need to do it all. But as we do it all, as we put our arms around someone, let's make sure that we are leading them to Christ, to eternal life. Now, doing this isn't easy. We have a spiritual enemy, and he detests what we're trying to do. He comes to kill and steal and destroy. So when we come to love and preach a message of grace, he opposes us. So evangelism is not, in, nor will it ever be, easy. In fact, the number one reason that Christians have been killed throughout the ages is because they have tried to share the gospel with others. And Satan always tries to stop the message in one of two ways. He either tries to twist the message or stop the messenger, right? So his number one way is through lies and deceptions, which twist the message, right? I mean, if you have, you know, you know, if he had everyone in here, if we're all out sharing a message, he just wants to make sure we're sharing the wrong message because then it doesn't matter what we say and who we say it to, right? So first twist the message. If he can't twist the message, then he'll try to stop the messenger. 
by force if necessary. And he has done so repeatedly. So evangelism isn't easy, but it is joyous. It's joyous. You know, every time where, you know, I'm on an airplane and I'm like, like I, I just know the Lord wants me to talk to this person, right? Like, the Lord has providentially put me this far, no, not, not this far, this far away, like this far away, you know, from this, like, big-looking guy, you know, who's like, like you know, like, like, I'm apologizing to this person because I'm, like, you know, leaning this way because the Lord providentially put me next to him. So I know I need to share with him. And it's always that, you know, it's hard. Never once have I regretted entering that conversation. I've only regretted when I didn't. You know, the most joyous and important things in life are not easy. Ladies, is it easy to bring a child into the world? Of course not. It's the hardest thing you'll do in your life. But it's also the most important and the most joyful. Is it easy to learn an instrument or a sport or a trade or a discipline, an academic discipline? No. Those things are not easy. But they bring great joy and they are very important. The most important and joyful things in life are not easy. And this is the most important and the most joy-giving. So we shouldn't expect it to be easy. Sharing the gospel is hard. And we have an opponent. Satan and those whom he holds captive to do his will oppose us. And so evangelism can even be downright frightening. You know, in, in this country, you know, at least in recent times, you know, the most you can get is dismissive reaction or maybe even a you know, slightly emotionally hostile reaction. All right, we don't live in a place like many of our forefathers in the faith or even our brothers and sisters in the faith in other parts of the world where sharing Christ with someone requires you to literally risk your life or your freedom. It's hard, even frightening at times. But hard and frightening things are not incompatible with being joyous and exciting at the same time. I've had the privilege of knowing people who do evangelism in highly persecuted contexts. They are joyful in that task. They're excited by that task, and yes, frightened, all at the same time. Hard and even frightening things can be joyous and exciting. So don't let the emotion of fear or that difficulty that you have stop you. You need to overcome that. Can I tell you, you, you do it in other areas, right? Some of you who can't seem to get over that barrier to share the gospel, you've jumped out of an airplane for fun, and yeah, it was, it was scary, right? You felt fear, and then you jumped, and it was the funnest, most exciting thing you've ever done in your life. The rest of you, you may not have jumped out of an airplane, but you've probably ridden a roller coaster. Why did you pay money and eat bad food <laughs> to ride a roller coaster? What do they do? They strap you into a cart and scare you. That's, 
what they try to do. I told the first service my daughter Lathy was in there when she was eight years old, and forgive me if I've told this story before, but we went to an amusement park, and, you know, she's eight, the boys were seven, you know, Annie wasn't with us yet, and, and uh, you know, I kind of was getting tired of riding the kids' rides, so I wanted to ride a roller coaster, and, you know, I was like, you know, I think they can handle it, right? They were just, t- you know, just tall enough. And so I, I, I looked at the different roller coasters, and there was this one coaster. I'm like, okay, that's really mild, right? It's, you know, it just doesn't seem too bad. I, I think they can handle it. So we, you know, I, I, I you know, there was, you could see people standing in line right next to this roller coaster, got in line, waited 40 minutes. And when we got into the, you, know, you kind of enter this little building, and then they have you sit down. I'm like, boy, that, like the carts, the trains look a little different than the ones I thought I was seeing on the track, you know? I'm like, ah, you know, maybe I just didn't notice. So we get strapped in. Well, you know, the line had gone by one roller coaster, but the line we were in was for a different one. It was for a new coaster called the X2, which is the scariest roller coaster I've ever been on in my life. (laughs) And it was their first. Good dad award right here, right? (laughs) Big metal good dad, you know? It scared, <laughs> scared, scared Lathy so bad. I don't think she's been on a roller coaster since. Now, she's planning uh, to go, and, you know, of course, now that I talked about her in the service, I'm sure she now has to, and good dad again, right, you know. But, uh, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that frightening and exciting are not incompatible. Hard and joyful are not incompatible. I get it. Evangelism is hard. It's hard for me. It's going to be hard for you. It's been hard for everyone. It's scary. But it is joyful and exciting. How do you get over your fear? How do you get over the difficulty? Well, you need to understand your duty to share. And you need to grasp hold of the joy of sharing. I think there's a passage which beautifully expresses both of those concepts, and it's Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Turn there, if you will, Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. I think this passage really beautifully expresses the duty we have to share and then the joy of sharing. Apostle Paul is writing to the Romans. He's been in context, talking about his desire to come to them in order to bear fruit, the fruit of saved souls among them. He says in Romans 1.14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Duty to share and joy to share. Notice first the concept of duty in verse 14. He says, I am under obligation. I'm under obligation. 
Paul uses a Greek term here. It's the word aphelites. This word was used in Koine Greek to describe a required duty, an unpaid debt, an unmet obligation, or an unfulfilled responsibility. I want to show you some of the other places it's used in the New Testament just to help you understand the power and the impact of this word obligation. It's used in the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, that word debts is this same Greek term, aphelites, right? An unfulfilled obligation, an unmet responsibility. Lord, forgive us for our unfulfilled obligations, right? And if, we, if we're instructed by Christ to ask for forgiveness for our unfulfilled obligations, it reminds us that if we fail to do what the Lord has commanded us to do, it is sin, right? As James said, to the one who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so the Lord teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to say, Lord, forgive us our debts, right? Forgive us our aphelites, our unfulfilled obligations, in Luke chapter 17, this word is used to describe the obedience that the Lord's servants owe to God. He says, look, when you've done everything the Lord commands you to do, you should say, look, we are unworthy servants. We only did what we ought to have done. And that word ought is this same term, aphelites. It's what we ought to do. We just did what we were supposed to. And then John chapter 13, there are many other places where this word is used, but I just chose a few to give you a flavor of this word. John 13 says, when Jesus had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And this is that same term of phalates. You also then have an obligation to wash each other's feet. And he says, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them, right? Notice again this concept of duty and joy being merged by the Lord. You ought to do this. This is something you should do, and if you do it, you're blessed. Duty and joy merged in the commandments of the Lord. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. In other words, what the Lord commands us to do, he blesses us when we do it. His commandments are not burdensome. They are a source of joy. When we live a life that obeys the Lord's commandments, that is the life of greatest joy. You'll find no greater joy than obeying the Lord and fulfilling his commandments. By the way, this term aphelites or obligation is used in the New Testament in multiple passages to describe the duty parents have towards their children and that spouses have towards one another, right? This is an obligation. You wouldn't fail to take care of your children. You wouldn't neglect them. You wouldn't fail to feed them or provide for them or instruct them. You have a duty to them. So whether you feel like it or not, you feed them, don't you? You know? You know, it's not like one of those things where it's like, you know, 
ah, I got to feed the kids again. I mean, I, I don't doubt you feel that way. I just hope you don't live that way, right? You know, sorry, kids, no dinner tonight. I just don't feel like it. Well, you know, the world kind of gets that from us, doesn't it, right? Yeah, no bread of life for you. I don't feel like it. We have a responsibility. When Paul says, I am under obligation, a phalates, he is saying he has a duty to preach the gospel. And he will be held accountable to the Lord for whether he will do that. That's why in that other passage, 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm under compulsion. I'm compelled to do this. Woe is me if I don't do it. To not do this would be sin. You know, throughout most of church history, all Christian churches taught that evangelism was the sacred duty of every single believer. In fact, there was an expectation that 100% of believers would be actively sharing their faith. And it was assumed that someone who wasn't interested in sharing their faith probably didn't know the Lord, right? Because if you were dead in sins and then born again to everlasting life and you know the King of glory, you've experienced his love, you received his grace, and you have absolutely no desire for anyone else to know that, then the odds are you don't have it yourself, right? If you have no desire to give this good news, you probably don't have it yourself. That's why a recent evangelist said this, if you have no concern for the salvation of your neighbor, I'm concerned for yours. Well, why do so few Christians view this as an obligation? Well, we live in a time in which there's been a massive worldview shift that blinds us. We live in a me-centered and me-focused therapeutic world. And the me-centered and me-focused therapeutic worldview of the modern church has replaced a God-centered and others-focused biblical worldview, the worldview of the early church and the one taught in Scripture. Well, because we live in a me-centered and me-focused therapeutic worldview, we have started to view any talk about duty or obligations as being legalistic. I didn't come to church to be told I have to do something. In our modern mentality, everything is optional. Nothing is obligatory. That's, how most, that's the worldview of most people. That's their default way of thinking. They don't view themselves as having duty or obligation. Duty is something for a soldier. He has a duty. I don't. Well, you do have a duty because you are a soldier of Christ. You're an ambassador of the kingdom. There are obligatory things for us as believers. We do have things which Christ has commanded us to do. Not just suggested, but commanded. There are things that are obligatory, not optional, and this is one of them. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to cross the line into legalism. There is a line that would, if crossed, would lead to legalism. What is that line? Well, the best definition of legalism is in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where Paul says, I want you to learn not to exceed what is written. Right? Legalism is when we exceed what is written. Legalism is a preacher or, or yourself imposing on you things that 
God has not imposed on you, right? So if a preacher imposes on you or you impose on yourself things that God has not imposed upon you in Scripture, that is legalism. Let me give you an example in the context of evangelism. If I preach from, Romans, or from Matthew 28, from 2 Corinthians 5, from Romans 1, and from many, many other passages, that you have an obligation to share the gospel, I have stayed within what is written because that is the case. That is what's in the pages of Scripture. This is an obligation that God has given to each and every Christian. But what if I say all good Christians will share the gospel with 10 people a day? You'll hand out 100 tracts a month and you'll do this, that, or the other. That would be legalism because now I've gone beyond what is written. Scripture commands us to share the gospel but never gives us a quota. Right? There's no quota. Well, why isn't there a quota? Why? Because you are a kingdom of priests. You are a royal priesthood, Peter says. And you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit indwelling within you is the one who leads you into the application of the Scripture. The Scripture is clear. Go and make disciples. The Scripture is clear. Be my ambassador. The Scripture is clear. Be a witness. Now you, you, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, must apply that command. And for each of you, it will be different in quantity and perhaps in method. It is not good to go beyond what is written, but also to stop short of what is written is equally bad. If I teach evangelism as an option for you, hey, you know, we've got some evangelistic ministries, want to sign up? I'd be stopping short because this is not an option. It's a, a command. It's obligatory. In the same passage where Paul warns not to go beyond what is written, listen to how, so that was 1 Corinthians 4, 6, don't go beyond what is written. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 1, the preceding context. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. In other words, he begins 1 Corinthians 4 by saying, we are a steward of the mysteries of God, the gospel. And it's required of us that we be found faithful with what has been entrusted to us. And then a few verses later, he says, now don't go beyond what is written. So we need to not stop short of what is written and not go beyond what is written. To stop short would be liberalism. To go beyond is legalism, and both are serious errors. So we need to kind of hit the biblical center. And the biblical center says that evangelism is a command. It is a sacred duty, but the application of that command is based upon the leading of the Holy Spirit in each life. I'm not trying to tell you how, when, or how often you have to share your faith. That is between you and the Lord. But my guess is if you're like me and you're honest, few of us are sharing the gospel too much. It's like prayer, right? Few of us are like, you know, I probably have overemphasized prayer. Have you ever found yourself saying that? Yeah, need to notch it back a little bit. It's getting a little out of hand here, you know. Most of us know that we need to grow in this area. And the Bible says that growing is our sacred duty. But I want to end today with a different concept. Not our sacred duty, but with 
our joy in doing this. Go back to Romans 1. He says in verse 14, I am under obligation. There's the duty. But then look at verse 15. He says, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Right? Verse 14 says, I have an obligation. And verse 15 says, and I'm eager to do it. I have a duty and it's my joy to do it. The word here for eagerness means to be eager, to be ready, to be willing, and to be joyously resolved to do something. Paul is saying, look, I have an, I'm under obligation to preach the gospel, and it is my earnest joy to do it. I'm joyously resolved to do this. It is my duty, and it is my greatest privilege. I have a duty to share, verse 14. I have the joy of sharing, verse 15. We should evangelize because we're supposed to, and we should evangelize because we long to. You know, every time where I'm in a, that context, it's like I almost, it's like I have to obey based on duty, and then once I'm sharing the gospel and afterwards, then I just long to have another opportunity, right? The duty comes first and the joy comes next. A duty to share and then the joy to share. Well, why was Paul so eager to preach. Why did this duty give him such joy? He explains it in verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I have been entrusted with the saving power of God in the gospel's power to transform the eternities of people. Why would I be ashamed of that? Why wouldn't I be eager to be part of that? Yes, it's a duty, but it is the greatest privilege I've been given in my life. And it is the greatest privilege that you've been given. Beloved, we have the duty to share and the joy to share. Evangelism is our sacred duty. And evangelism is our spiritual joy. We have the duty to share and the joy to share. We're committed to that. Core value number one is our commitment to that. To take the gospel to our nearest neighbors. That's our own families. Parents, your children are not born saved. They are born, then they need to be born again. They are your nearest neighbor. Take the gospel to them. Then we have our personal neighbors, those who live or work near us, those who are in our social circles. They're our personal neighbors. Then we have congregational neighbors, the apartments around us, the visitors who come and don't know the Lord. And then we have our community neighbors in the greater Kalamazoo area. We need to reach them, and we are committed to doing so. I hope you will be too. I hope you will understand and embrace your duty to share. And I learn, yearn, yearn for you to experience the joy of sharing. It is the greatest joy. Lord, help us as a church to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Lord, we do have a sacred duty and we do have great spiritual joy in the fulfilling of that duty. Lord, what greater purpose could you give to us? What greater purpose could there be in a mortal life than to be messengers of eternal life? Lord, you have 
saved us. You've granted us eternal life. Help us to be one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Help us to do that in love and humility, but Lord, with passion and excitement as well. For your glory we pray. Amen.